So, it sounded like a small frog. <laughs> Do you know, all I have to go on is pictures. This frog... Eh, don't listen to that. Ignore that. <laughs> Didn't realise that was at the end there. <laughs> you can't hear it if I talk over it. Then. I mean, I, can't, I, I can barely hear it without you talking over it. Is this revealing the secrets of the, the tiny frog? <laughs> I was a man speaking at the end of the sample. I had no idea that was there. <laughs> usually they do that at the beginning. Yeah, well, this is it. I usually screen the ones that do that yeah. because I don't want to have to cut out the chat. But it's okay. I can just press the button and then press it again. It goes away. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't really hold out any hope of you getting this because it doesn't even have a common name. Oh. Then I'm going to give it a common name. <laughs> it's the lowland grass narrowmouth frog. Yep, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're not really just going to randomly guess a complete another, um, scientific name, are you? So... This is a frog called Leptodactylus fernarius. I mean, it has got a very narrow mouth and a pointy face and some big eyes. That makes sense. It's got a little noise, so it's got to be coming out of a little face. Yeah, it's quite variable in its colour. It's from the family Leptodactylidae. This one's found in Brazil and Uruguay. It likes it in moist savannah. See? Grassy? Yeah, it does seem to like grassland, marshes, um, pastures. Yeah, so even garden ponds. So yeah, I think it probably is like a pretty widespread, like common species where it's where it occurs, but doesn't seem to be that much known about it. But yeah, it's nice, nice little frog, and I just really like the sound. <laughs> nice little, which is frog. as good a reason as anything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was trying to find one of the ones from the paper we we're discussing, but I couldn't because there is a cheeky little frog. There is sort of a bit of a uh, appearance by a few frogs. Alas, couldn't find them. But in this episode, Ben, we're going to be discussing amphibian defense mechanisms. And frogs obviously have some defense mechanisms. They can jump to escape predators. Yep, the coward frogs. Yep. Yes. Some can even jump from trees and glide using their webbed yep. feet and flappy Fancy skin. jumping. Yep. But if you're thinking about amphibians that can defend themselves. You think toxicity. You do think it's toxicity, but I don't know. All those headbutting I mean, frogs that have the, the spikes in their face. Yes. <laughs> but you wouldn't really think of Sicilians as being like particularly damaging or, you know, dangerous defensively, would you? We did do that one ages ago that was about how they can secrete gunge yes. from their butts yes. or from glands near their butts. Yep. And that makes them unpalatable or toxic. Yes to predators so they'd like crawl into a hole and then squeeze some of this stuff out of their glands that makes the tail unappetizing so if anything tries to nibble them while they're in there they would just stop and let's face it sicilians don't exactly look appetizing to begin with no they just look like a really gungy tube of meat yeah yeah and of course sicilians the legless amphibians yeah, you know, they're amphibians, they're related to frogs and toads and salamanders, but they've evolved leglessness as an advanced evolutionary state, like some of the best creatures on Earth. And yeah, now they just sort of scooch around underground. They're predators, they eat like worms and bugs and other stuff, but they are obviously not massive, so they are subject to being eaten by things. And one of these things that is commonly eating them is venomous snakes. So let's introduce the paper. 
So this is a paper by Mancuso, Zaman, Maddock, Kame, Salazar, Valenzuela, Wilkinson, Rolance, and Fry, 2023. Resistance is not futile. Widespread Convergent Evolution of Resistance to Alpha Neurotoxic Snake Venoms in Sicilians, published in the International Journal of Molecular Sciences. So yeah, we're talking about venom resistance, very complicated subject, very uh, sort of, I guess there's a bit of chemistry in there. Yeah, just a bit. But also sort of molecular level biology in a big way, Mm -hmm. very confusing to the likes of us. But you know, I think we got the gist of it. And resistance to venomous snake toxins. So obviously you've got snakes. Snakes are busily evolving venoms. The venoms are really useful in subduing their prey. But as soon as you've got something that's useful to a predator, the prey is going to stop and say, hang on a second, this is a bit good. I'm going to try and evolve. Obviously it's not conscious, but prey species will start to evolve mechanisms by which they can defend themselves from these clever new predator strategies like venom. And there are various ways in which animals can develop immunity to venom. One of the common mechanisms is what they call serum factors. So these are sort of things which intercept the toxins before they affect their sort of physiological targets. So you might have things floating around in the blood, which bind to the venom and make them useless and stop them getting where they're trying to Mm -hmm. go. That's pretty much how human anti-venom works, as far as I understand it. You know, you get these serum factors in the blood and then it catches the venom before it can do any damage or stops it doing as much damage. And there's lots of animals that have this serum factor based resistance, like rodents have it, rats and squirrels and voles against rattlesnakes, opossums have it against pit vipers, mongooses have it against their snake prey, and various snakes have this serum-based resistance against their own venoms because either they're accidentally likely to bite themselves or they might you know, consume a bit of venom. Consuming it, not such an issue because the digestive tract will take care of it. But, you know, if you've got really pointy fangs that deliver venom, the likelihood of you accidentally biting yourself, even in the mouth, is quite high, especially when you're trying mm-hmm. to catch prey. Or if you come across a angry conspecific, of course. Exactly. Yeah. If you're in a competitive bout with another snake, you might try and bite each other in order to um, win that fight. And if you're going to be fighting with members of your own species, it's beneficial to not die every time that happens. So there are also um, a bunch of snakes, a bunch of other snakes, which have um, resistance to venom. So, yeah, I didn't know that Burmese pythons have resistance to some venom, which kind of makes sense as they're sort of slow movers. Yeah, uh, And sense. some primates even have, yeah, some primates have even got resistance against the lapid snake venoms. One of the common ways in which snake venom affects the sort of target creature is to do with this thing called acetylcholine. And this is something in the brain which alters the kind of uh, firing of neurons and how excitable neurons are. Neurons obviously transferring information around the brain. One of the really common mechanisms of neurotoxic snake venoms is to interfere with this acetylcholine binding in the neuroreceptors that it binds in. And if it can't bind, that means that it can't trigger normal muscle contraction and that results in muscle paralysis. So essentially, eventually, if your acetylcholine isn't binding, eventually that paralysis is going to affect the diaphragm and you're going to die by respiratory failure. And if you've seen videos of snakes having bitten well, snakes with neurotoxic venom having bitten their prey, the one that always comes to mind for me is that one where the king cobra has bitten the 
monitor lizard Mm -hmm. and the monitor lizard like you can tell it's alive you can tell it wants to get out of there but it's just completely paralyzed and it's just kind of like blinking looking around yes i'm wondering because there are different places that neurotoxin affects right you've got like yeah yeah presynaptic one where it's blocking nerve transmission stuff you've got one that just straight up damages nerves and you've got the one you're talking about which is like this postsynaptic one which is blocking sort of nerve to muscle translation I'm not sure where the King Cobra Venom fits in where it's targeting. Oh, right, yeah. Because I have mm. a feeling it definitely has some of the presynaptic stuff going on, I think. Maybe King Cobra wasn't the best example, but yeah, I think the result is probably going to be simple. Or it's a mix. This is the other thing. Yeah. It, you know, these venoms are complex, but it's probably a mix. Yeah. But either way, nasty. It's getting in your, in your nerves or preventing your nerves from communicating from your muscles and it's messing you up and preventing even things that would be relatively automated and not needing mm-hmm. direct communication with the brain. Yes. So we're kind of focusing on snake venoms, which are interfering with the binding of this acetylcholine um, on the neuroreceptor. Elapid stuff, basically. Elapid stuff, yeah. yeah. And so there are a few different ways in which the prey animals can stop the venom from getting in the way of this receptor and sort of messing up their sort of information transfer in the brain. Either they can sort of create an unusual shape at the receptor that the venom can't enter. This is like a bit of a simplification, but it's sort of essentially what's happening. They either create an unusual (laughs) shape, the venom can't enter. The term that we used, where is this binding site where the, the venom's acting upon is congested by a shrubbery-like sugar chain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it either does that or it creates a positive charge at the receptor and the venom molecules are also positively charged. So you imagine two positive ends of a magnet sends it away. So that's another one. And then the other one changes the shape of the receptor in some way. Yeah. They call it changing the substrate. And that means it can't bind. So there are these kind of three different mechanisms by which the animals in this study are gaining immunity or at least partial immunity to these venoms i don't think we want to go into too much more detail on that because it does get pretty crazy but there's a few different means by which it happens and they were looking for three different ones yeah which they could detect based on this one gene region that codes for it exactly the short version is there's this bit that the toxin binds to and causes problems with if you change what that looks like or how that's structured in terms of the amino acids that are present you can interrupt the toxin from messing with it Yeah. And so because Sicilians, as we said, are living underground, a lot of elapid snakes, we're talking about things like coral snakes and crates. And these things live in various places around the world. They also like hunting underground. And obviously Sicilians are tube shaped. We know snakes like eating other tube shaped creatures because they fit very conveniently. You don't have the pressure of having to evolve a massive head if you can just slide a tube inside a tube and digest it. And so Yeah, there's this idea that because they're all living underground together and Sicilians are easy, delicious prey, there's this massive selective pressure to evolve a resistance to the venom. That was kind of like the idea that sort of spawned this paper, that the authors were like, surely they must be becoming immune, otherwise they're just going to be dying in their billions. And so, yeah, they looked at the DNA of 40 different Sicilian species and also 24 non-Sicilian amphibians. And I said, they're looking at this particular single gene region that codes for this site where the neurotransmitter acetylcholine binds so they're looking for changes in this binding region 
And Sicilians are old, right? They've been around for like 200 million years or more. Alapid snakes, I mean, not the individuals, the species, you know, the group Sicilians. <laughs> really they don't old, live for grumpy years. Sicilians. They've seen yeah. it all. Yeah, they evolved a long time ago. They evolved when Pangaea was a thing. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of appeared and then they diversified. They already had a global distribution, more or less, not at the poles, obviously, but they already had this massive distribution all over the world, even before elapid snakes appeared about 35 million years ago. So Sicilians are already all over the world. And then suddenly there's this novel threat 35 million years ago in the form of elapid snakes. And so this kind of creates the perfect playground for possible convergent evolution if they're all going to be trying to evolve a resistance to these yeah, venoms. If you think of it, the whole problem solution thing, you've got a bam, okay, here you go, novel problem experienced by a huge different number of quite diverse groups at this point because they're appearing in, in multiple continents. Have they all reacted in the same way? It's a bit of a misconception sort of treating it like problem-solution, but for shorthand, you can sort of think about it like that. Yeah. I'd say it's a pretty big problem for a species to be getting eaten by elapid snakes and having no resistance and no way of escaping. It's You can't sort of presume that evolution sees it as a problem that needs solving because it's not sentient in that way right that's giving agency to a process that doesn't have agency (laughs) yeah okay yeah i agree okay i agree yeah it's getting a bit philosophical now yeah but yeah um (laughs) fundamentally i suppose you're right but also i don't know i think you can look at evolution in terms of like at least solving problems as they sort of appear Mm -hmm. for a bit all i'm saying is it's not perfect but for this it, it works yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, yeah. So, yeah, they did a big phylogeny. So they looked at all the relationships between the Sicilians and then they looked to see whether or not they had resistance. And, yeah, it was pretty yeah. crazy how many 40 times... 40 Sicilian species they had, I think. Yes. Which is superb. Yes. And it had evolved how many separate times? 20, 20. separate times in Sicilians they studied... So basically, essentially, there's been at least 20 times that Sicilians have independently evolved a resistance to No, at least 15 of, of convergent. So you've got 20, 20 evolutions of it, but 15 that appear to be convergent. Ah, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. So at the very minimum, it's evolved on 15 separate occasions, unrelatedly as a response to the same sort of threat from lapids which is crazy you know like you talk about conversion evolution very seldom do you get you know you might get like two or three cases of something doing the same thing but having that many times it's sort of popped up independently is really really striking yes yes i think so i mean it's also happening in a very small part of the entire genome right it's this one binding site that's that's being affected and it's changing in very very similar ways yeah it's sort of three different ways, as it turns out, but or oh, actually maybe four, but they all seem directed to the same purpose in the same site. I don't know how many sort of other alternatives there would have been to this in terms of coming up with some sort of resistance. Like you mentioned, the, the sort of serum, the serum solution. But other than that, I don't know what else there would be. Yeah, and what's interesting as well is that quite a few of the species have actually got multiple different types so like they've actually got they've doubled more up. than one of the yeah they've like doubled up in ways that they're immune to the venom which is pretty cool that might also reflect because you know all of these sicilians live in like really 
disparate places and they're evolving similar answers to similar threats but the threats aren't going to be identical right. so there probably are components of the snake venoms which they're exposed to which have kind of influenced the way that these things have evolved and which ones have propped up yeah and I'm, and that's assuming that the one solution is as good as another and that they are actually perfect at preventing binding mm. i would imagine that some of these are less effective than others depending on the venom, like you're saying, depending on the specific venom, but also just maybe they're not 100% effective. So there is still that pressure to have a sort of backup. Yeah. And so when they dated the kind of timing of these events, because they were like, okay, well, they've evolved these things. When did they evolve? And generally speaking, it seems like they did evolve quite recently mm -hmm. in sort of geological or evolutionary timescales. So yeah, around sort of 35 years, million years ago, they all started to sort of mostly pop up. And that is around the time that elapids started to become a threat, which is pretty compelling evidence that the elapids sort of caused the change. It wasn't just a coincidence. And um, something else adds a bit of fuel to the fire that the elapids are responsible. The presence of these elapid predators with their venom is responsible for this evolution of venom toxin resistance is that the Seychelles, the islands off East Africa, there have never been elapid snakes in the Seychelles. There might be some introduced species now, I don't know. But historically, there weren't any. And in the Seychelles, the Sicilians there don't have this resistance. So that's just like one more little line of evidence that it is to do with the elapid snakes. And they did have a look and they found a little bit of resistance in the frogs and toads and newts that they looked at as well. And that tended to be the case that in species which coexisted with elapid snakes, they who particularly preyed on amphibians they, they might also evolve resistance and so yeah a really cool idea that they had and the evidence here does demonstrate the extent of convergent evolution that can yep. kind of be expected when there's like a single widespread predatory adaptation like these neurotoxic snake venoms it also triggers this like parallel evolutionary arms race yeah yeah there's a little bit more going on because they have sort of id'd a few that have this a uh, swap out uh, amino acid that they're not entirely sure if it confers resistance or not because it hasn't really been seen before so it needs some additional testing to work out if it is actually doing that but that popping up in a couple of species is interesting they're also suggesting that so some of these solutions as we're calling them as they're calling them motifs in the paper require multiple substitutions and they're suggesting that those might have come about in a sort of stepwise manner one substitution at a time which I'm having a tough time wrapping my head around in some ways because if you need multiple substitutions for a solution to sort of be selected for, like, okay, this is actually working, this is actually generating resistance, how do you have the sort of steps going up until that? Because, like, evolution doesn't know that it's leading to a solution, these sort of prior ones aren't being effective. So they're sort of suggesting that maybe in some of these multi-amino acid swap scenarios there might have been some sort of intermediate or other reason for these changes outside of the resistance that sort of then prompted that solution that that came with three different new amino acids basically because it's you can't swap three all in one go and suddenly get there that's well i suppose you could but it's much less likely to happen and their reconstruction is suggesting that it did happen in a stepwise manner if i'm understanding that correctly i think that sort of means that there might be something else going on, which makes sense. This is a very sort of active, important area with multiple different selective pressures occurring on it. It might be there was another selective pressure that pushed it closer to getting to resistance and then there was an extra little 
extra little change at the end to actually turn it into something useful. Or useful for venom yeah. resistance, but it was useful for something else. Yeah, well, I guess through time, it's probably pretty plastic. Like, all of these things, if they're in any way costly and you don't need it anymore, yeah. it'll probably go away after a while. Well, and I think that's further supported by how recent this stuff is, right? If, if it can change so quickly, it's going to be pretty damn important. <laughs> Imagine being the first... You're an lapid snake, right? You're slithering about underground, maybe a little coral snake. And your whole life, you've just been chomping down Sicilians. They're utterly defenseless, comically so. You just think of them as the easiest prey. You don't respect them. And then one day you bite one and it's, nothing happens. It just doesn't work. It does, it's still wiggling around. Yeah. Crazy. What a paradigm shift. Mental. <laughs> what disappointment. Anyway, so, yeah, terrible. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Widespread convergent evolution. Sicilians. I always like talking about Sicilians. They're so cool. I saw one. I saw one in India. I think I told you this. I might have already said it on the podcast. I was quite excited. Have we recorded an episode since I got back from India? Yeah. Mind. Anyway, we saw one. I think it was, I think they call it multicolor. But yeah, it was cool, man. It had a little black back and a little yellow sides. And it was just crawling around. To me, that's classic Sicilian, that is. Yeah, it yeah, looked very prime. much like the Thai ones, but I think yeah. there are different species that look like that. But yeah, it was really, really badass. Um, so have you got anything else about the Sicilians before we move on? No, I, I just think it was a fascinating paper about venom resistance and Sicilians, they constantly have secrets and I want to learn more about them. That's all I have. Absolutely, I fully mirror that sentiment. So... Um, I've got two things here, any other business. I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. Bad news first, please. Okay. So the bad news is we were talking about stress in the last episode of Snakes. Well, a paper came out. It's entitled War Prompts Distress in Blind Snake. And essentially, some researchers in Tel Aviv, they had a blind snake Syrian blind snake, which is mm-hmm. Zerotyphlops syriacus. Yep. And they had it chamber and they were measuring its CO2 production for some reason. And while they had it in the chamber, a bunch of bombs were fired and landed really close to the university. Yep. And they exploded. And obviously it's a big shake. They have this figure for the um, CO2 production of this blind snake. And basically it's chilling. And then all of a sudden all these bombs land and then it starts breathing really heavily and producing way more CO2. It's upset. And I mean... Yeah, that's not it. probably altogether surprising. You think if you bang something loud near an animal, it's going to stress it out. Yep. But yeah, it's just sad. And it's obvious, but it is also sad that human conflict has these kinds of ramifications for the stress levels of animals. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's huge yeah. disturbance. Yeah. On that note, there was also, um, they've been destroying dams in Ukraine, Russians. And um, apparently loads of Danube newts have been caught in the crossfire because they're all getting washed up and killed mm-hmm. by the destroyed dams. So there's a bit of a underreported environmental crisis, which is also really, really lame. Well, and it's just crazy hard to even quantify those things because it's a active conflict zone. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently a few of them, they rescued a few dozen and they're in the Odessa Zoo now being cared for. But a lot of them... Obviously, when the dam broke, you had a big rush of water. And yeah, a lot of them yeah, just yeah. got washed up and couldn't get yeah. back to the water, which is really sad. So those are the bad news. War is also bad for animals. And there's been a couple of cases of it recently, which yep. have been pretty sucky. But the good news is big-headed turtles. You know those guys? Yeah, very arrogant. Heads? I've never really been a fan. <laughs> well, they're critically endangered anyway, Ben. 
I mean, you'd probably agree that's a shame. That is a shame. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, platysternum megacephalum, the big-headed turtle, unique because they have this giant head. They're also the only species in their genus, and they're really common in the illegal wildlife trade because they have a giant head. There's this group of conservation organisations as part of the Asian Turtle Program, which have been trying to basically head start these turtles and release them back into the wild since 2015. And just recently, they've been checking up on some of these populations where they've been releasing them. Yeah, they found a bunch of individuals that have survived for at least four years. They've all grown. They're much bigger. And yeah, they've been traveling around a little bit, but kind of generally sticking to where they've been released. And yeah, it's just really nice case that these head starting turtles of a really rare species have been released and then subsequently four years later have been found still in the wild doing quite well and yeah it seems like local people are like really engaged with this yeah it's a successful conservation project which is ongoing excellent so i just saw that and i thought yeah we like good news yeah. the fact that this critically endangered turtle seems to be uh yeah having a bit of a renaissance is good superb yeah that is great news more big-headed turtles yeah. please but, yeah yeah but yeah, I think that's it for me for uh, any other business. Got nothing else? Okay, then. You got nothing else? No. No. Okay. Well, yeah, if you want to get in touch with us, you can. Herphighlights at gmail.com. If you want to become a Patreon, patreon.com slash herphighlights. Big shouts to the patrons. And yeah, we are on social media. And I think that's about it. So thank you for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. <laughs>